Good morning, church. It's good to see you. I, uh, I love your facility here on Divine Street. I just love mid-century. It's great. And I uh, even have a smoking area up top, which is kind of cool. And uh, so that's terrific. Uh, I'm sensitive to the time. My wife was a children's ministry director for years. So when I was uh, preaching, I would look out sometimes and she'd be going like this. So I am sensitive to the time. Let me pray. I want God's help. I need God's help. And then we'll jump in. Father God, thank you for what we have heard this day of your goodness amongst us. You are a great God. We've come to sit at your feet and uh, to worship you today. And so, Father God, we love you. We want you to hear that from our lips. I acknowledge what you already know, that your servant's not capable nor worthy of the task at hand. I need your help, so I ask you to give it. Father God, may you be glorified in Jesus' name and for his glory we pray, amen and amen. I'm going to do something different than I normally do, uh, but open your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 4, and I want to talk to you this morning about thriving through the seasons of life. Uh, I was driving to a church to preach uh, a few months ago, driving through a small town, a big church there, and uh, there was a sign out front, and it said, celebration service this Sunday. I thought, oh, that's great. And then the next line on the sign said this, this is our final service. They were done. When I drove up this morning, I noticed there's no name in the sign on the front lawn, but it says St. Paul's United on the sign. I don't expect that they built this building expecting that one day that you would be here, and praise God that in his providence he's allowed you to be here. But what means, uh, what allows a church to thrive? You know, will Blue Water be here if the Lord would tarry another 45 years from now? You know, would you still be at it? Or would there somebody else be here? Or would this be something else, a mosque or a apartments or whatever? What's the guarantee? What's the guarantee? Paul writing to the church at Corinth, he's encouraging, exhorting them to press on, to continue on in the faith. And so, uh, listen, as we read the word of the Lord, I'm going to read a number of verses, and then I want to uh, just give you some practical application today. This is God's word, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 1. Therefore, having this ministry, by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. But we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. But by the open, open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus." Verse 7, but we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way but not crushed, perplexed but not driven to despair, persecuted but not forsaken, struck down but not destroyed, always carrying in the body of Jesus, always carrying the body, the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may be manifested in our bodies. Look down to verse 16. So we do not lose heart. Paul repeats that. 
Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day for this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient but the things that are unseen are eternal. This is God's word. Over the years, I expect probably Pastor Tim, hundreds of people have thrived, survived, and given to make Blue Water what it is today. So how do we press on? Churches only last when their people last. Did you know that? When their people keep pressing on, keep following Jesus, keep doing the things that we're called to do. Let me ask you this this morning. If every member was just like you, what kind of church would Blue Water be? If everybody was just like you. So this morning what I want to do is this. In a world that is so confused and gone crazy and is so broken, uh, if you go to social media today, you'll see that uh, people want to live curated lives, right? You, you look at Facebook and you go, wow, their life is better than mine, right? And, and we live in a world that's so self-involved, where the pursuit of self is so good, so strong, so important. You, you know, uh, today, you know, uh, the world pushes that we should just be about ourselves and think about ourselves and talk about ourselves and promote ourselves and all that. There's actually a Greek word for that. The word is Kardashian, <laughs> if you didn't know that word. But we do not lose heart, amen? We do not lose heart. So I know that in a room of this many people, all from different places and different experiences, and you've all had great joys, victories, brokenness, problems, I get it. So this morning what I want to do is just take the next few minutes and I want, want, to, I want to do something a little different than I typically do. But I want to walk through the decades of our lives, beginning with our teen years, and I'd like to pose a question to you that after 30 years in ministry, I, I've sort of come up with these, and uh, I think they're important questions that we have to ask ourselves as we go through our life and our ministry, and we deal with all the pains and the hurts and the brokenness. Now, each of us will fall into one decade, I expect, but listen for your decade and the question that I'm going to ask you. I'm going to ask you a question, and then I'm going to give you an application or a consideration that deals with that question. So that's where we're headed over these next few moments. So if you're a teenager this morning, any teenagers? Just nod. Yeah, we got some teenagers. The first question you have to ask yourself as you begin this life journey as a teenager is this. Who am I and how am I changing? Who am I and how am I changing? You're becoming a more fully orbed person. You have opinions, responsibilities. You have your own ideas and your own opportunities. That stands apart from those of your parents often. You're, you're trying to figure out who you will be and what will define you. you. You make choices including appearances and pursuits and spirituality and sexuality. And these are emotionally stirring issues and they rise up in you during your teen years. Should I fit into a box? You know, should I march to the, the beat of everybody else's drummer or am I going to be my own unique person? Here's the question or consideration that needs to go with that as you are figuring out who you are. The question is this, what is my worldview? 
And you want to figure this out in your teen years. What is my worldview? From what lens am I going to see the world? And any good worldview will answer three questions for you. The first question is this. Where did I come from? Where did I come from? Did I simply come from the goo to the zoo to you? Or am I divinely designed and made? Where have I come from? The second question is this. Why am I here? Am I just here to burn up 70, 80, 90 years and then I just evaporate into the mist? Why am I here? Where did I come from? Why am I here? And the third question that a good worldview should answer is, where am I headed? What does the future hold for me? Where did I come from? Why am I here? Where am I going? And in your teen years, you need to wrestle those questions and get that worldview firmly planted in your being. You're in your 20s, not if you're in your 20s. You're in your 20s this morning. The next question is this. What will I do with my life and with whom? What will I do with my life and with whom? And this, uh, what will I do with my life, it certainly has a relational aspect to it, but also has a vocational aspect, doesn't it? And the pressure in our world, and it can kind of wreak havoc on us in our 20s is that, you know, you're supposed to have that wrestled to the ground, right? Figured out. Now, there's been a significant shift in the last two to three generations. Professionally, 30 years plus ago, people cared almost exclusively about what they did as a vocation and far less about who they did that vocation with. Now, the who of who I'm going to spend my life with, not just relationally, but vocationally, has become incredibly important. And that's a good thing. Do you know that in the New Testament, and kingdom work, the first decision that drove most of the early church apostles was the, church, was the decision of who they were going to serve with, who they were going to go and do ministry with. It wasn't even where they were going to go. Henry Ford said this, he said, he who walks with God always gets to his destination. Companions on the career journey, and certainly you know this, on the spousal journey, massively affect the journey. That's why we read in Proverbs chapter 16, the heart of the man plans his way, but the Lord does what? Directs his steps. The Lord directs his steps. Now, here's what I found with a lot of 20-year-olds today in the world in which we live. They're discouraged. They're disoriented. The job opportunities aren't what they once were. I don't know about here in Sarnia, but where I live in Cambridge, buying a house is a pretty big deal. Right? Almost impossible, unless you've got family money. And so 20-year-olds often become discouraged and, and a bit disoriented. I have some friends that are into sailing, and they tell me that if you're out sailing and you get disoriented, then there's some things you should do, and I listened to that, and I thought, man, that's got application to life. So 20-year-olds, listen, if you're disoriented, and you're discouraged, and you're in your 20s, and you're trying to figure out what to do in life and who to do it with, let me give you a few pointers. The first thing is stop. Take a time out. Exhale. Push back the noise of the world. The second thing they do is they steady their boat. Steady your boat. Realize that you're in a safe place. You're in a healthy environment. Focus on the horizon. 
Don't, don't get called into, pulled into the world wants you to think you're drowning. If you're drowning, you will not be dreaming. You can't do both at the same time. Start dreaming about what God has for you. Steady your boat. The third thing is this. Study your compass. At times like that, when you're discouraged and disoriented, even not in your 20s, any time in your life, you study your compass. Why? Because you have to return to that which you know to be true. That's why figuring out your worldview in your teens is so incredibly important. Because then when you get into your 20s, you're anchored to something. You can say, I know where I've come from. I know why I'm here. I know where I'm going. I'm anchored to something. I've returned to that which I know to be true. Study your compass. And then the fourth thing is finally you can seek the wind. What is God doing that he's called me to and he's gifted me for and he's impassioned in me that I can join him and catch that wave? My son-in-law and my daughter live in Sydney, Australia. My son-in-law owns a surfboard manufacturing company. Trying to get him to move here because Lake Ontario, there's nobody selling surfboards there. (laughs) He said something to me one time. He said, you know, it's interesting. He used to surf every morning, but he's getting a little older, so now he golfs a lot of mornings instead of surfing. But he said, you know, only God can create a wave. He said, I can catch one, but only God can create one. So what is the wave that God has for you to catch? For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ, right? That's what Paul just wrote to the Corinthians. It's not about us, it's about what God has for us. So if you're in your 20s, Don't be discouraged and disoriented. Stop. Steady your boat. Study your compass. And then seek the wind, what God has for you. Who's in their 30s this morning? Who's in their 30s this morning? A few of us. In your 30s, life changes because now you've got kids and mortgage and all of that. Right? In your 30s, the big question becomes this. How do I manage my commitments and responsibilities? How do I manage my commitments and responsibilities? Because in our 30s, life can become incredibly frenetic. In your 20s, right, it's food and fun, and and now it's bills and babies. We can feel pulled in many directions. The complexities of of our responsibilities become much greater. Young parents, if you're a young parent here, listen carefully. Listen carefully. One of the most important things you can do is establish non-negotiable, non-negotiable boundaries for your spiritual and emotional health. And the same for your kids. Begin at the beginning. Way too often we are living reactionary lives. Do not live vicariously through your kids. Decide to do that in your 30s. Do not try and take out of your kids what God didn't put in them. Consideration in your 30s is this. I must determine my bandwidth because you can't do it all. I must determine my bandwidth. Only you can live your life. You determine your priorities. You're not meant to be exhausted all the time and live frenetically. That's why the call of Jesus in Matthew eleven twenty eight 28 is, Come unto me, all who are weary and heavy laden, because I will give you something else to do. Because I will give you what? Rest. Rest. 
and the frenetic lives we set up for ourselves and running our kids here, there, and everywhere and every single obligation and thinking that we're missing out and living the FOMO life, which is the fear of missing out, which our culture indoctrinates into us, is not only unhelpful, frankly, it's ungodly. Who's in their 40s? Somebody's in their 40s. Yeah, Cressmans are nodding. I thought, I thought Val was way younger than you, Tim. I don't know why. In your 40s, the big question is this. Listen carefully. Why do I struggle with a sense of disappointment? It can come in your 40s. We begin to realize, frankly, friends, in our 40s, that we're going to have to embrace the reality that our life does have boundaries and unavoidable burdens. Right? That, that there's some things that we're probably not going to do in this life that we thought maybe in our 20s. You know, oh man, you know, my life's going to... And we get into our 40s and we say, you know what, the trajectory in many ways is that there's burdens and obstacles that are going to be in my life and there's some things that I'm not going to rise to. That's just what... And the sense of disappointment can come. What's the consideration? Listen carefully. The consideration is this, if you're in that place today. This is important. You cannot measure your life at any one time during your life. You cannot measure your life today. Your life is a continuum. Our success in God's kingdom is not measured by the world's metrics. Amen? It's not measured by the world's metrics. Faithfulness and obedience matter to God. Matter to God. Not what kind of car you drive. I like what Will Rogers said. Listen to this. He said, don't let yesterday use up too much of today. Isn't that good? Live today. Don't long for a day that God has not given you. Hebrews 12, 1 and 2. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings to us and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us and the race that is set before you is different than the race that is set before me. You have your own event. I have a 28-inch inseam. I'm not a runner. <laughs> Who's in their 50s? Some of you are in your 50s. The question in your 50s is this, friends. How do I generate fresh excitement in the second half of my life? How do I generate fresh excitement in the second half of my life? You know what I've noticed about people in their 50s? I just turned 60. Go ahead. You're going to go, oh, can't believe it, can you? I know, you can't believe it. You know what I've noticed about people in their 50s? you got to be careful because you can get more bitter and not better in your 50s. Because in your 50s, your life is fairly set and the energy and ability to make massive shifts is often gone. And by the time you get into your 50s, you know what's happened? You've been dinged a few times. You've been hurt. You've been mistreated and, and maligned and, and, and you pick up some emotional baggage. And that baggage can fester and become corrosive in our souls. And we get a little older and optimism begins to diminish. And you can get bitter and not better. 
instead of generating a fresh excitement in your life for the second half. It just doesn't happen. How do you deal with that? Let me quickly give you five ways if you're in your 50s. Deal with that emotional baggage so the trajectory stays positive. The first one is this is forgiveness. That's obvious, right? It's hard work. Often only possible with God's help. Forgiveness. Secondly, repentance. You know, because sometimes when you pick up emotional baggage, your life's been dinged. You had a part of that. You ever notice that? I've had some people really hurt me. But truth be told, probably I was somewhat of a contributor in some of those cases, at least some. Probably more than I want to realize. The third is thanksgiving. That's how you deal with getting bitter is you rise up in thanksgiving. The fourth is wisdom. Find hopefulness and helpfulness. Don't waste your wilderness experiences. And fifthly, think about your grander story. Our lives and God's grace convene for his greater purposes. Amen? Consideration in your 50s is this. Am I involved in legacy-leaving activities? Am I involved in legacy-leaving activities? As Paul writes in Colossians 1, am I walking in a manner worthy of the Lord? Am I getting better in my Christian walk? Who's in their 60s this morning? Yeah, me too. The question in your 60s is this, friends. How long can I keep on doing the things in my life that have defined me? How long can I keep on doing the things in my life that have defined me? Often in our 60s, our kids are often on their own. If they're still in your basement, kick them out. (laughs) Tomorrow. It's Sunday. Let them stay the day. But often in our 60s, we're facing those things that defined us are, are, are sort of eroding away. Our career, our vocation may be coming to an end. You know, one woman was asked, uh, her friend said to her, hey, I heard Harold retired. Yes, he did. What's, Har- what's that like? And she said, Harold, retiring? Yeah, you want to know what it's like? It's twice the husband and half the money. <laughs> but our lives do change in our 60s. Listen carefully if you're in your 60s and you're saying to yourself, you know what? How can I keep doing the things that have defined my life? Listen very carefully. Because I've noticed this, I've watched, and I've seen this. What should you be doing now if you are in your 60s considering, listen, that your greatest contribution may yet to be made? Because I've seen people make kingdom, God-sized contributions in their 60s. You're pretty dumb till you get to be about 50. Did you ever notice that? You know, I did a lot of dumb things in my 40s still. By 60, God has taught you some things. You've got the battle scars to prove it. You've been through it. And I have seen people who have dealt with the emotional baggage that can accumulate into the 50s. And they get into their 60s and they make massive kingdom contributions. And, and, And don't confuse a significant life with a successful life. Don't settle for a successful life. Push for a significant kingdom life. And I've seen people in their 60s do that. 
Some of you are in your 70s. Not if you're able. It's just, kid- it's just a joke. It's, it's just a very small joke. Not so funny now that I'm 60. <laughs> the question in your 70s is this, frankly, folks, is this. How do I deal with an increasing sense of loss in my life? You get into your 70s and there's some losses. The, the kids are off. They're self-sufficient. The, the grandkids who we often spend time with in our 50s and 60s, they may even be growing and, and some of them are heading off to college and off to career life and, and our, our work's Life's work has likely ended or is ending, and, and we're facing that, and, and hopefully you've dealt with that emotional baggage, but how do you deal with that increasing sense of loss in your life? You know how you deal with it? Thankfulness. Thankfulness is the antidote for anxiousness. Did you know that? It reminds us of God's faithfulness. Paul said in Colossians 3.15, and let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and then he says this, three little words, and be thankful. Be thankful. Some of you are in your 80s. You're in your 80s. Maybe somebody here in their 90s. And the question becomes this, and And we had a large seniors group in the church that I pastored in for many years. And I think this has become ever increasingly the case. In your 80s, the question is this. What is my place in a world that considers me weak and maybe obsolete? You get into your 80s, your 90s. You say, what is my place in this world? I I, I don't understand all the technology. I've endured massive change. And I may feel weak and obsolete. People I find in their 80s often feel they're traumatized and frankly somewhat marginalized. The psalmist writes in Psalm 71.9, do not cast me off in my time of old age. I want you to be encouraged this morning, folks. If you're in that place, if you're up in those 80s, I got news for you. If you're not dead, you're not done. The consideration is this. Listen carefully. The consideration in this. Listen. In Christ, the best is yet to come. You hear me? The best is yet to come. The best is yet to come. John 10, 28. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hands. Remember the old song we used to sing? What have I to dread and what have I to fear? Leaning on the everlasting arms. Remember that song? I have blessed peace with my Lord so near, leaning on the everlasting arms. If you are in your 80s or maybe even in your 90s and you're feeling a little bit uh, like the world thinks you're weak and obsolete, I got news for you. The best is yet to come. The best is yet to come, without a doubt. Let me share a story with you, and I will be done. And this is for you, whether you're 18 or 88, as we close this morning. 
How many of you have heard of a, a band called Coldplay? Some of you have heard of Coldplay, well-known band. Probably 10 years ago now, they came out with a song. It was a very interesting song. It was called Fix You. Do you know that song? Fix You. The song uh, was largely written by Chris Martin, who's the lead singer and the lyricist of Coldplay. And he wrote this song, Fix You, and interestingly, he wrote it at the time because he was married to Gwyneth Paltrow, the actor. And he wrote it for her because her father had just died and he saw her so adrift and so full of grief and so lost and, and in such a fog that that prompted him to write this song, Fix You. And uh, so he did. The words go like this. When you try your best but you don't succeed, when you get what you want but not what you need, when you feel so tired but you can't sleep, stuck in reverse, and the tears come streaming down your face when you lose something you can't replace, when you love someone but it goes to waste, could it be worse? Lights will guide you home and ignite your bones, and I will try to fix you. I find the words interesting, and I find the premise that he wrote that song for his current wife at the time, Gwyneth Paltrow, about this fact that, that he would try and fix her. And the reason why I find it so fascinating is because Chris Martin grew up in an evangelical Christian home. And so he had heard the gospel many times and he knew deep in his own being that there is someone in this world who can fix you, but it ain't Chris Martin. There is someone who can help you when you lose something you can't replace. And when the stream, tears come streaming down your face. If you ever watch the music video, and you can watch it, don't look it up on your phone right now. We don't have good stream here, right, Tim? You'll blow Tim's iPhone, it'll melt. If you watch the video for that song, Fix You, it starts out and Chris Martin is running through London, the city of London. He eventually runs through the neighborhood and runs into the stadium. The neighborhood that he's running through in London is called Charing Cross. Anybody ever been to London? Charing Cross is the center of the city of London. People get their bearings there at Charing Cross. Uh, that's kind of the place they figure out sort of their bearings from. Uh, five roads converge there at Charing Cross. And, and, and People will often say, you know, oh, okay, if you get to Charing Cross, and here's what you do. One road, it takes you down uh, to Buckingham Palace. One road leads down along the Thames River. If you take another road, it takes you down to the Parliament buildings. It's the center of London. In fact, the interesting thing is that Londoners call Charing Cross the cross. I read a story a few months ago about a kid a little boy who was lost in London. He's just a little guy. Tears running down his face. And a bobby, you know, police officer, 
looks over and he sees this kid crying and looking around, you know. And he walks up to him and he said, are you okay? And he says, no. He said, where's your parents? I don't know. I'm lost. What's your name? Thomas. Thomas, do you know what your last name is? No. Do you know, do you know where you live, Thomas? No. Okay. But Thomas's parents had oriented him. And so little Thomas looks up at that police officer, and here's what he says. Listen to this. Mister, if you take me to the cross, I can find my way home. If you take me to the cross, I can find my way home. That will fix me today, mister. Whether you're 18 or 88 this morning, Blue Water, let me encourage you to go back to the cross often. It's the cross that gets us home, amen? It's the cross that gets us home. We sang in our first song this morning, our sins, they are many, his mercy is more. What a great truth that is. And one day we will be home. Because Paul said, for this light and momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory. Isn't that great? One person thinks it's great. <laughs> Isn't that great? Amen! This isn't the end of the story. This is the, this is the opening act. You're being prepared with the afflictions in this world and the pain and the brokenness. You're being prepared for something glorious that you can't even imagine. Paul tells Timothy, hey, Timothy, I'm being prepared for a crown of righteousness that will be presented to me by King Jesus himself. Wow. Friends, that which God bought with his son's blood, he will keep until you get home. Go to the cross. Let's pray. Father God, we love you. Father, we live in this broken, confusing world. But we acknowledge that one day the management will change. And all things will be made anew. Lord, if there's somebody in this room this morning who's never been to the cross, to the place where the trajectory of human history has changed, I would pray that they would do that today. They would come and meet Jesus and realize what we have sung, that our sins are more than we could have ever imagined. But your love is deeper than anyone has ever known. Father God, thank you for your goodness to us. And we acknowledge this morning that with, with this light and momentary affliction, we have our eyes fixed on eternity. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.
and amen.